We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. E. Welcome to the Resilient Schools podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, your host, and I'm excited to have today Rebecca Lewis Pankratz. She works with both communities and schools across the U.S. to truly solve poverty and heal trauma. She does this by helping brilliant and caring leaders create sustainable ecosystems of resilience through building better relationships. Rebecca fought her way out of poverty in the trailer park in 2011 with three young sons. A local poverty resolution project found Rebecca and activated her journey. She later went on to work for that nonprofit and then went on to build multiple projects like it to help more families. In 2015, she started working with public education and ignited a trauma-informed schools movement in her state and beyond. Rebecca experienced a lifetime of trauma, trauma and poverty, and through access to buffering relationships, she healed from both and continues to light the path for others. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. So grateful to have you here. Yes, sir. Thank you. It's good to be here. Very good. So what is something that people should really look forward to in this interview today? I think really kind of understanding the hardest hill to climb when you are building a, a resilience-oriented school. And that hill is discipline versus punishment. I've worked with over a hundred schools longitudinally, and that is always the hill where the most growth happens. So I'm excited to dig into that. Yeah. Well, we are not just going to dig into that. That is the first few minutes, but then we go on a wide, wide ranging conversation about a lot of different things. And for me, what I loved most about this interview is how you helped me define uh, discipline versus punishment, which is something that I have struggled to put into good words, but you uh, displayed that so clearly, and I appreciate that. So thank you for that, and you will hear that uh, in my interview with Rebecca in just a moment. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools. 
so that I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com BE for a demo. That's IXL.com BE. So, Rebecca, tell us about why, well, let's start here. Let's start with the difference between discipline and punishment and how we understand those in a resilient school. Oh my goodness, Jethro, that is a really good question because sometimes those two words have really big meanings for people. And so as we've done, you know, longitudinal work with schools that are on the road to really um, create environments where the science of trauma and toxic stress, and more importantly, the power of resilience is part of who they are. Um, Discipline versus punishment seems to be the biggest hill that schools climb. And so as we were building the work with schools, we started to intuitively understand that we needed to create some clarity around that for people. So the way that I always like to kind of look at concepts and lay that up against how people are experiencing something. And so I always like to kind of break things down. And so when you think about punishment, right, the core anatomy of punishment would be threat, isolation, and shame. So when you're looking at a practice that you're using with a kid to try and help them um, meet expectations, are you using an approach that causes the child to feel threatened? Are you using an approach that causes them to feel isolated from their community or from you? And are they experiencing shame? Um, Discipline would be something that promotes safety, belonging, and dignity. So we definitely need consequences in a school that is on the road to building resilience. And a lot of times people kind of get hung up on, well, can we do this? And can we do that? That's not trauma-informed. And I'm like, does it promote safety, belonging, and dignity while still holding the kid accountable? Awesome, right? So that's kind of the way we break it down for people. Yeah, I, I think that's a good good place to start. And I, I like how you've been able to identify those things. I'm going to quote you on that into eternity, I'm sure, because I've I've been trying to uh, to wrap my head around that. And that was the most succinct way to put it uh, that I've that I've heard before. One of the major complaints that I got from teachers as I was trying to become a resilient school was, well, kids aren't being punished anymore. And I, and I always said, yeah, it's not the point. I'm trying to help them learn. And I help them learn through the mistakes that they made and through the conversations that we have. And sometimes it just takes a really long time for them to get that message and Mm -hmm. for them to really learn it so that they stop making those choices that we feel deserve punishment, but framing it like that as uh, threat, actually isolation and same shame, oh, excuse me, and discipline as safety, belonging and dignity, I think is, is really powerful. Why is it you think that this is so difficult for schools to, 
to overcome. It, it really is a part of the, the culture of schools. What do you see as the barrier that makes it so hard for us to deal with? That's a really big question, Jethro. And so I'll tell you what I've learned. And um, and I always want to show up to this conversation with a lot of humility and say, I still have so much to learn and schools are still teaching me every day. And so um, you kind of have to go way back and look at where we come from. And so, you know, we've been living under a paradigm, gosh, for, for probably 80 to almost 100 years around the way people do life. And we've been living under that paradigm so long, Jethro, that people don't even question it anymore. Mm-hmm. And the paradigm is behaviorism. And, um, you know, at the when you kind of boil behaviorism down, it all comes down to this idea that if you did something, you chose to do it. And therefore, we need to help motivate you through reward or pain to choose differently, right? And it was a pretty profound paradigm when it first started to happen and people were really exploring human behavior and how do we change human behavior. So if you kind of come a little bit up from that, the way it lives out today is it's all about choices, right? You're making good choices or you're making bad choices. And if you're making bad choices, then we need to motivate you through some kind of process to help you choose right. So when you think about punishment, people don't punish because they're mean-spirited. They don't punish kids that are continuing to falter, kids that can't seem to get on the line and stay on the line. They don't punish because they want to see those kids have a bad experience. They punish because they want to see kids succeed. So when you sit down with folks, it really comes from love and also fear. So a lot of the time when you're working with folks who are having a hard time kind of wrapping their heads around, you know, the new way, the new paradigm, which we'll get into in a minute. And I sit with them and I ask them a lot of powerful questions. You know, one of the big fears that's identified is that if we don't kind of, when kids are getting off the line, knock them back on as quick as we can, then we're failing kids. And there's this idea that perhaps the kids that aren't able to stay on the line haven't had enough punishment in their life outside of school, which is why they're really faltering. And so there's this idea that if we don't get it right now with them, then basically we're just signing them into prison, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that comes from a place of love. And it's really important that when we're showing up to folks who are living under this paradigm that we have deep honor and deep respect for um, the belief systems that drive their own response to kids. So I always say that behaviorism is in its twilight. It's about to go to bed, right? But it's still really a part of who we are. And people don't really, until you start to conceptually put it out there, they're not really aware that, oh yeah, that is kind of the belief system that drives a whole lot of this. The other thing is, is that um, the new paradigm, and I wish we had something other to call it than trauma-informed, but it's what has stuck, right? We're really talking about the science of the brain, the body, the stress response system, and attachment. And so the new paradigm says, hey, there you are choosing when you're in you know, the prefrontal cortex of your brain where you're making decisions when you're regulated and, you know, the top of your brain is mission control and it's telling you, maybe I should do that or maybe I shouldn't. And you're really thinking through um, the way you show up to something. 
great, but we know there's two other parts of our brain, right? And to not use all the fancy neuroscience terms, but to just say we've got an emotional or a relational brain and we've got a survival brain. And when folks, when we get into our emotional brain or our survival brain, our thinking brain kind of goes offline and a whole lot of other things start to happen. And so, you know, I always ask folks when I'm working with schools, I'm like, do I have any parents in the audience? And yes, lots of parents. I'm like, how many of you have woke up in the morning and opened your eyes? And the first thing you thought about was, I can't wait to make my kid feel slow, stupid, and weak today. And of course, everybody in the audience is like, no, I've never thought that. Nobody's ever woke up and thought that, right? And I'm like, but how many of you have gone to bed at night and laid down and thought, I blew it today. And I'm like, what happened in between the time you got up and the time you went to bed? Did you choose? And you can kind of see people starting to go, no. And I'm like, what happened? And they say, I got stressed out. I was, you know, great. So at some point in most all of our days, especially when it has to do with um, the busyness of life and trying to help kids grow up in school or outside of school, the adults, at we make mistakes and we're not actively choosing to make those mistakes. We know when we've done it, something happened and we got kind of hijacked, right? So it really isn't all about choices. The other thing that I help kind of people think through is if we get off this podcast today, Jethro, and I leave here and I get a phone call that one of my kids is really, really hurt. And my thinking brain goes offline and I rear in the person in front of me. The question is, even though it's a really bad phone call, do I still have consequences for rear-ending the car in front of me? I do. I didn't choose to rear in the car in front of me. I wasn't where, I mean, all the things you can already see the picture in your head. I still have consequences. And so helping schools to really understand that there tends to be, once we get the science and we start to understand the new concepts, schools tend to kind of swing the other way and they don't want to discipline kids at all. And that's not good for kids either. But when we're disciplining kids, what we have to start helping the adults figure out is, is the kid regulated? Are they starting to come out of that state of dysregulation before you deliver the consequences? Yeah. Well, and Rebecca, this brings up a, an interesting idea about when the consequences happen, what the consequences are that are worthwhile and not. And so as an example, I had a, a student who was always getting in trouble, always causing problems, always around whatever problems were there. And he was always to blame for everything mostly because he was a big black kid and he stuck out like a sore thumb and he was always involved in stuff. And so I worked with him all year long. It was his eighth grade year, my first year at the school. And it, he just could not understand what we were trying to do. And he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He didn't perceive that there was anything really wrong with what he was doing. It was just the way he was and there was nothing to do about it. And, you know, we talked so many times and it wasn't until the second to last day of school when he finally said, I was scared and I didn't know what to do that. I was like, now you get it. Now you get it. You were scared and didn't know what to do. That is all I needed to hear you say ever, because now we have like a little foothold, a little something we can work with. 
And there was no way that he could ever tell me that all throughout the year because he didn't understand it. And I had told him numerous times, this is what you're going through. This is what your reaction is. I, I can see it a mile away that you are that you are reacting. You still have to have a consequence. You still have to have a situation here, but you you need to learn how to identify when you're in this position. And so that question of is the child regulated and prepared to hear it, that is so important. How do you how do you manage that? That can feel like an impossible task to ask someone to do. Yeah, Jethro, and and am I regulated and ready to sit? Yeah, with no kidding. You know? Um, like so, there's a lot to this, and we're we're asking people to you know, um, people's paradigms are shifting. And then I talk about cognitive dissonance, right? And so cognitive dissonance is the space in between the old paradigm and the new paradigm. That's right. And and like, and I tell them like, when you get super stressed out and you don't know what to do, what do most people do when they're experiencing cognitive dissonance? They go back to what they know, right? So, you know, for us to kind of, we always tell schools, it typically takes two to three years for a school that is bought in to really start humming with new approaches. Um, and you know, it's, it is a lot to ask schools. And the other reason that people use punishment, there's two other really big reasons. Um, and again, neither one of them are rooted in malice. Um, but when I kind of dig it, dig down and drill down with teachers, like I'll start asking them like, why do, what are the two reasons that we use punishment when they're understanding there's a difference, right? And somebody will inevitably pipe up and say, because it's fast. And I'm like, yep, it's fast. Here's what you did. Here's what we did in response to that box checked. Hopefully you learn a lesson, right? And the other reason that, that we use punishment and that we have a hard time kind of letting go of this, that at some point, somebody often in a big audience will pipe up and say, because it works on some kids. There's a lot of kids that if I say, hey, you're going to lose this, you just lost this, da, 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 I'm calling mom. They never do that again. So wow. it's a great intervention, right? And that is part of the cognitive dissonance for people because it works on 77% of the kids. It's these 23% over here, like the young man you spoke about, that oftentimes what adults will do is they'll think, well, I didn't get the punishment right. So tomorrow I'll up the ante and maybe he'll get the message, right? And so we're looking for how do we create seriousness so this, this kid can change, right? So... And the other thing you and I know, Jethro, is that for the four to six percent of the kids in our schools that I would wonder if this young man falls into that, it is very labor intensive. So, you know, you said you worked with him all year just to have a breakthrough for him to be able to identify a feeling that was causing the responses in himself, which I promise you, you know, I thank God for you because you know, by the time they get to eighth grade, if he's had a lot of adversity, his body and brain have done a really important job of compartmentalizing his feelings. Right. And so he knows when he's mad and he knows when he's happy, but anything beyond that, like that's a tough question for a, for a young person um, that's had a lot of adversity. You also have to work on the system because we can't just put the onus off on the classroom teacher. There has to be systems work done. I'm a big proponent in middle school and high school of trauma-informed ISS rooms. Um, I think we need in-school suspension. I think we want to keep discipline in school as much as possible. And I think we need the exact right person in those rooms 
to help kids stay up on their work and also learn about who they are, how things are going and know that they are loved. Um, I, 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 <laughs> so I, I recently interviewed Jonathan Cranford about uh, his book making, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's uh, something about how you, the art of in-school suspension. That's what it is. I knew it had come to me. Mm, and and he, he, the whole time he was talking, I don't know if he even recognized this and we didn't talk about it like this, but the reality is, is that he's using a trauma-informed approach to in-school suspension. And I also don't like that, that phrasing. That's why this podcast is called the resilient schools podcast, not the trauma-informed because mm -hmm. I think that there's, as we are starting this new paradigm, we're experiencing this, this different way of looking at things and having a negative focus thing like a trauma-informed approach is not going to be helpful in the long run, uh, partially because, I'm sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent. <laughs> you just go, Jethro, because maybe you're going to be the one that shifts us over to where everybody knows what resilience-oriented is. Well, that's, that is part of my hope in doing this is that, that that can happen. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com b to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com be. But going back to that trauma-informed ISS room, the, the idea is that if, if the ISS is an extension of punishment, it's a totally different feeling than if it's an extension of discipline. Yep. And, yep. and so I think about uh, GK Cunningham, who was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Marines when I was a kid who taught me what discipline was in a very positive, healthy way. But it also involved what felt like at the time punishment, but I realized was not. I was feeling a uh, threat and isolation because I wanted to be perfect and thought that's what I needed to be. And I was putting those feelings on myself while he was trying to teach me how to be the kind of man that, that I yeah. knew he knew that I could become. Yeah. And he was, he was a hard guy for sure. Uh, but, but I also knew that he cared about me yeah. and that things were done for my safety and to help me have a fulfilling life. So he was my scoutmaster. We went on a camp out and I'm bringing the story up for a purpose. So bear with me for just a moment. Okay. <laughs> so we're on this camp out and the winds are blowing like 50 miles an hour. We're in the desert in Southern California and uh, it starts raining. It The wind rips our tent, my brother and me, and 
water starts coming into our tent. And so it, you can just imagine for a 12 year old boy, this was incredibly frightening. So uh, GK gets everybody and says, okay, everybody get in the van because it's just too windy. He like our whole campsite is destroyed and we all get in the van and I'm watching in the van as he is out there taking down all the shelters that he had set up by himself, all these big uh, steel poles that have been bent from the wind that was so strong. And he's out there by himself doing this while all of us boys are just sitting in the, in the van trying to get some sleep. And he demonstrated then that this is how you be disciplined. This is how you take care of people. You make sure that everybody's safe and then you go deal with whatever needs to be done. You go do that hard work. And looking back now, I could imagine that he just totally hated doing that and was so annoyed and bothered that it was happening, but he never let us know. And the next day was such a beautiful day and so wonderful beautiful temperature, light breeze, beautiful views. It was incredible. And he had been up half the night protecting us and keeping us safe and taking care of all the gear that we had. And it just, it really taught me an important lesson then that I didn't realize until decades later what that really meant. And so his haranguing on us to keep our stuff clean, keep it organized, keep it in place so that we knew what to do with it. Yeah. I didn't understand that at the time. And it wasn't until later that I finally understood it. And we would get in trouble from him, but it was because we weren't being smart and weren't making good choices. But he always showed us that we mattered, that that it was worthwhile for us to be part of what we were doing, even if we were making his life a, a living nightmare, which sometimes we did as a bunch of 12 and 13 year old boys. Yeah. 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 And um you know, that is what you're really talking about is this magic combo of strength and um, warmth and expectation and, you know, and understanding Jethro that all the boys that he got to be a part of your lives were all learning and growing at different rates. And you all had unique challenges, right? And just like running a school. Um, and so I think that, you know, Discipline is probably one of the most critical components to helping kids grow and be successful, especially if they've had a lot of unbuffered adversity, right? And, you know, when you think about resilience, um, resilience is really comes from science. I think there's been a lot of buzzword to resilience and a lot of um, different, gosh, I, I want to be really kind when I say this. Um, there's a lot of different I guess, SEL kind of um, organizations that seem to slap that word on there, but but they're using it more as a label and a way to measure kids instead of understanding that resilience is something that's built internally from external factors, the external factors being people and environment, right? And and so, you, you know, your um, scoutmaster, he, he was building your resilience, and it wasn't always comfortable and you didn't always like it. And sometimes you had funky thoughts about it, him, yourself, the whole thing. But looking back, you're like that guy right there. Everything's different because of him. And that is that one person that changes an entire life course, right? And hopefully we have more than one person when we're growing up, right? Hopefully there's multiple people. But for some kids that come to our school, you might be it. 
Yeah, it it makes me think of um, you talk about people learning at different rates, and that is something that we also it, it ties into this because it's not just about learning academically. It's not just about learning the book stuff. It's learning how to be a human that we are learning at different rates. And my daughter with Down syndrome is learning how to be a human at a different rate in a different way than my neurotypical children. And what is really fascinating to me is that my other children are getting a much different experience because they have a sibling with Down syndrome that not everybody has the experience of, of living with. And so those things that we often see as as challenges are sometimes really the thing that makes us makes it possible for us to be resilient that we didn't even understand before. And part of my frustration with, with our system is that we see kids who don't behave well in school as a negative, not as there's something that they could teach us as well. And especially in the things that they've experienced, what's your take on that, Rebecca? Well, I've sat with lots and lots and lots of educators. Um, and in Kansas, uh, oh gosh, I don't know how long ago it was. It's probably been seven or eight years ago now. We closed a lot of, um, I guess you call them institutions, but uh, for kids. So um, gosh, there's a, there's a better terminology for it than institution, but there, there are many of our placements just ended like with the Senate bill, they just kind of ended. And, you know, I, I think that I want to be really life-giving to the fact that in Kansas, I don't know what it's like in other places. We have a lot of violent kindergartners, violent first graders, violent second graders. I mean, we have staff that are getting hit and bit and kicked on a daily basis and there's nowhere else for the kids. And going back to the system and what's frustrating about it is that, um, we really are doing so much more than edu educating kids. And I think we've always known that as educators, like it's, it's about so much more than the academics. And it's about helping kids figure out where they need to grow and what they're good at and hopefully getting passionate and starting to build a way forward after they leave us. But now we're throwing in this dynamic of um, lack of resilience in our neighborhoods lack of resilience as far as resources in many, many, many of the families that um, are where our kids come from. And so we have a lot of very stressed out educators. And oftentimes we don't have enough humans in the building to really help some of the kids that need us the most. So you end up with overwhelmed people that feel like they're failing daily as they're trying to, you know, figure out how do we get Johnny what Johnny needs and how do we take care of all the other kids because Johnny's so intensive. So it's really complicated. Um, and in the beginning, when I work with schools, you kind of have this sense of how do we get Johnny out of here? <laughs> right. They're not necessarily saying that. Right. But sometimes they're like, we have no idea, right. What we're supposed to do. And, um, and then we start to shift and people start to reimagine systems and possibilities uh, and it starts to get a lot better and people start to be a lot more empathetic, compassionate, nurturing, but it's still hard, Jethro. Like, I still don't feel like we equip schools to actually do the mission that we're asking them to do with each child. 
Yeah, I I totally agree. We don't. And we I think we're a lot of times asking them to do something that is way above what what is really possible. And and we in my mind, we have to. We have to start bringing in uh, additional resources and people to help make that happen. So I'm I'm starting my doctoral work uh here in a couple months and one of the things that i that i want to do is create some sort of uh character building character education type of thing for students in a school that is supported from kindergarten through 12th grade and involves making sure that kids have mentors and webs of support in their life and that you can't just say like for for almost every kid they have their parents or caregivers and they have their teacher at school and those are the adults in their life some kids are are blessed or fortunate and have aunts and uncles who can be added to that list some have a church or other groups that they can have that association with some have boys and girls clubs and other things where they can have some of those associations but really, I believe that every single kid needs five adults that they can go to and have a connection with that is not um, that is not transactional, right? Like your your teacher has to listen to you because they're your teacher. And we need to find ways to help kids have other positive adult role models that are that are done in a safe, healthy way that doesn't expose them to further abuse and neglect or anything like that, but that they can go to someone. And having having this guy GK in my life was one of those things that made a huge impact on me. There were a bunch of other boys in this group, but that doesn't mean that he impacted them in the same way. And I don't think that I got as much out of it as some of the other boys in the group as well. But the reality is, is I, I knew that I could go to him if I had a problem and he would help me. And at a basic level, that is, that is incredibly powerful. And I knew that he would help me not just because he was my scoutmaster, but because he really cared about me as an individual. I feel so fortunate that I had that Rebecca when I was young, that, that I could go to many different people and, and have that. And that's, that's part of a systemic shift that we need to make to enable those kinds of things. What, what's your thought on that? There's so much there, Jethro. And, you know, it's not this simple, but if you just tried to make it simple, resilience equals relationships. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, and so there's, there's so much there and, um, and it's really hard when you have lawmakers, um, school finance, stakeholders, businesses, parents that all have these competing, um, they're just really loud about the achievement part. And so I feel like a lot of times our educators kind of get pinned in against this. We got to get our test scores up. We got to get all these things up and then seeing the little people in front of them or the teenage people in front of them that are just buried under the burden of life. And so when you talk about having these access to safe, supportive, available adults, that's the key. And if you think about, I'm old now, um, but when I was a kid, 
we'd all play outside all the time. And sometimes I leave early in the morning and I wouldn't come home till, you know, supper time or almost dark. But there were these signs that hung in certain windows of certain houses. Do you remember what those signs were, Jethro? The neighborhood watch signs? Yes. It's a block mother or, you know, yes, there were these signs, right? And you knew if I skin my knee or I need a drink or something's going on, I just got to see one of those bright orange signs and get to that front door and that mom will help me, right? <clears throat> the, the tricky part now is we have, you know, it almost requires both parents to work. I mean, like that's just the, the general rule of society in American life today. And we don't live near our families the same way we used to, right? It's it's to have aunts and uncles and cousins, um, right? You know, in your own town is is unusual. Um, and then you know, I kids that have access to church, to youth groups, to um, scoutmasters, to coaches, like that is part of the puzzle. And then you watch kiddos and families who are pretty isolated. And um, a lot of times they're isolated because of poverty. And, you know, the other thing that I get to do is build poverty projects where we're really bringing parents into a process where we are wrapping support around the parents and bringing these safe, supportive adults around the family. And that's part of that whole thing, Jethro, is really building resilience by building community. Now, how does that transfer into schools? I do think we need mentor programs in school. I think we need our older kids, our high school kids to be mentored by folks outside of the school. And then I think our high school kids need to mentor our grade schoolers, you know? And so the person outside the school that's mentoring the high schooler is also mentoring the high schooler on how to mentor the grade school, right? And so that we're just intentionally churning these relationships all the time and having these human interactions so that people know they have people, mm -hmm. right? The more yeah. people you have, the easier it is for you to overcome anything. Yeah. When we are alone and we're experiencing threat, isolation, and shame, ostracism, um, toxic stress, right? Because stress is not bad. Bad things happening to us are painful and uncomfortable, but they don't necessarily change everything. There are events that go on in human beings' lives, but when bad things happen to people and there's no people around the people that bad things happen to, that is toxic stress. And that's where it gets real tricky, right? And I know as a mom, you know, I, I raised kids in Kansas trailer parks Gosh, my oldest was seven when we got out. And then there was three years of climbing out of all that. And I can tell you, I had an overactivated stress response system up until I was about 40 years old. And then everything changed in my life because of a poverty project and because of learning about the science, right? But the reason I bring that up, Jethro, is because I worked two and three jobs and was in college with three little boys by myself. And when I would go home at night and my kids, I'd get them from the babysitter and all they want is mommy, right? Jether, I just remember so many times just kind of going through the motions with them, but really deep down inside feeling like, I just, I don't want anybody to touch me right now. I'm so rattled from, you know, all the things I had to do today. And now looking back, I understand, right, that my own stress response system was stuck on high alert and I'm trying to nurture kids, right? So 
my kids were experiencing the secondary experience of toxic stress. And anyways, that's a different podcast, I'm sure. But, but yes, people need people. So your, your, your doctorate, go make that happen. And character is always a word that's kind of struck me funny though. So I'll just push back on you a little bit. Oh yeah. I, I couldn't think of a better word. So uh, that is not, I'm not committed to that. I actually am. I despise the word character education. I don't think that's what we really want to do, but yeah, keep talking, but I'm right there with you. I don't have a better word. Yeah. Because character almost feels like we are assigning um, status to people. And I don't think that character in and of itself should be viewed like that. But I think what I guess probably the rub for me is that for so long, I think I felt really judged and separated by people with character as someone without character. Mm. I didn't feel seen. And I felt like if you understood all the dynamics of my life, then you perhaps wouldn't be judging me for the things that you're seeing, right? Well, and and that's exactly the point that I was getting to before that it, those those other aspects of your life made you who you are and while not always positive, were certainly developmentally essential to who you have become. And whether or not you have arrived at your potential yet is immaterial because your potential is going to be made up of all these things that happened in your life. And your potential is unique to you just as everybody else's is. And so that's where like, it's not really character specifically because there's so much more to it than that. It's not academics because there's so much more to it than that. And so it's a conglomeration of, of many different things that I personally don't have a word for just yet. You said something pretty powerful right there. I did. I should record that. You said, you said unique to you. Yeah. Right. Which is really what we're talking about. Unique to you. And then, you know, you'd have to find a way to wrap around the us, right. When you're bringing in these, but, but really that's what we want to help our young people identify and experience is what makes the world lucky to have you in it. Cause we can see it, but can you find it? And then having those champions that just really like you. Yeah. Now, whether they're kind of Mr. Rogers or General Patton in the way they show up to your life, doesn't matter. That's another interesting thing. When I do training on resilience and using the brain and the body science, and um, I always ask teachers, I had these two high school teachers that really impacted me. And I dropped out of high school on my 16th birthday. I lit that building on fire. I was one of those kids, right? But there was these two teachers that I'd skip school and go, go come to school and go to that one's class, go skip the next couple hours, come back to school and go to the other one's class. And one guy was um, a coach and a creative writing teacher in the English department chair. And he was a warm and fuzzy guy that just loved kids and saw kids. And he always had a toupee that was flopped over on the wrong side, right? Super nurturer. Freshman year, he knew I was already out on my own and he knew I was walking from across town and I'd get to first hour and have a cup of coffee on my desk. Nobody else is just mine, right? I didn't drink the coffee as a kid, but I was cold and he knew, right? And so then there was my art teacher, Miss Lilligram, and she was not a warm and fuzzy woman. Very stoic, big, big, beautiful eyes, like an owl, um, salt and pepper gray hair. 
and she just looked at you, right? You just knew, right? Um, but she she saw me and made a connection with me too. Warm and fuzzy, stoic and reserved. Two very different teachers that understood how to get a tough kid to achieve. And I always tell people when you're coming to this work and you're understanding the brain, the body, the stress response system, and how to really help kids build their resilience, you don't have to be anybody different than who you are right now. Exactly. Exactly. I, I just, I just want to intervene here a second and say, when I, when I would, was working with students and they would complain about a teacher being strict, I would never excuse that teacher or condemn that teacher. And I would say, that's what works for them. And that's what they're good at. And so what can you yeah. learn from that? Yeah. And as I, as I coach uh, principals and teachers now, the same kind of thing applies. You don't have to be somebody else. You have to be yourself and you are unique and beautiful and made up of all these things that got you to that point. Embrace it, recognize who you are and be true to who you are. And None of this other stuff matters. And and teachers often thought that I would, that if you were a hard-nosed, like discipline-focused teacher, then I didn't like you uh, because that wasn't me. And I would say, look, that's just not me. And so I'm not going to pretend to be that person when I know that that's not what my strength is. And so recognizing your strength and leaning into it even if it is not traditional or typical is, is totally appropriate. And actually serves you better and serves the people you're serving better. And I love that Jethro, because sometimes we can get into this trap of you're not doing it right. Well, if you want me to do it different than what comes naturally for me, we're going to be here a long time and I'm willing to get on that road and try together, but you know, And, and, and I never want someone to do something that is not natural to them. Take the principles and the things that matter and apply them to how you are and make it work for you. That's what I what I think is important. Well, uh, we are about out of time, but this was wonderful. And I'm so grateful for uh, your your time here today. Um, uh, any final words or ways people can learn more about you or learn from you? What yeah, so, um, it, well... SDAC.org is where you can kind of find out about the resilience work that we do. Um, Rebecca Lewis Pankratz on YouTube. I've got some videos uploaded. They're not anything fantastic, but there is some of me on there. Um, and we have a conference every November um, for schools. So it is a trauma-informed, um, it's called Bridging to Resilience, but it's a trauma-informed schools and community conference. And so that will happen November 8th, 9th, and 10th, maybe. So hopefully I can get a link to you, Jethro. Maybe you can stick that in the show notes. Um, we got we went to a different venue this year. We're not using a hotel, so we got the cost way down for people. So hopefully we can get all kinds of folks that um, otherwise might norm, not normally be able to come. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, thank you again. We'll put a link to that in the show notes at resilientschools.com. And uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, Jethro. It's great to meet you and to find out more about your work too. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. 
When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.